Good day, good day, good day, everyone. It's your boy, Peter Dunn, Pete the Planner, the Pete the Planner Show, live from Indianapolis, Indiana, not really, Carmel, Indiana, and the Auburn area. Damian Dunn, are you in the incorporated Auburn section of town? Just outside. So, but is your address, uh, city address Auburn? City address is Auburn, but I am outside the city limits. Man, I just realized that no one cares. Including not neither a of us. single person. Uh, Dame, uh, welcome to the show this week. We've got a variety of topics that we're going to cover. Um, people are just joining us now on Facebook Live. If you're listening to us on the podcast right now, just know you can be part of the live show. Comment, uh, be part of the frivolity uh, at Facebook or YouTube on noon on Fridays. Dame, you have a good week this week? This week went really fast. I've been very busy this week. Did your life change drastically at noon on Wednesday when there was a changing of the administration at the presidential level? Was that this week? Yes, it does. It was this week. Oh, no, no, not a bit. Uh, Dan's a good day to you. Dame, did you happen to catch the uh, young poet uh, who recited her poem at the inauguration? I did not, but I understand that many people are now big fans. Uh, the words were beautiful. Uh, her sentiment was beautiful. I, I think the most impressive thing about her was her stage presence was shocking. So maybe just catch five, 10 seconds of it if you could. Um, it, it's unbelievable, her presence. It, it was pretty fascinating, especially if you're a 22, 23-year-old. Uh, Danza just notes in the chat, Dame, uh, that she enjoyed your cash envelope uh, account blog post. Wow. Thank you. Oh, you're echoing, Dame. <sighs> All right, let me see if I can fix it. Deb, or De- thank you, Debbie. Uh, Dame, go ahead and talk. This is what people love about the new format. Uh, the, we get to uh, all experience the technical glitches together. So if I'm still echoing, uh, somebody say, yes, you're still echoing. Lord. All right, if so not, I, I uh, made some adjustments. I don't think you're echoing anymore, uh, but all the same. It is sorry. Like- Dame, the show this week, we are talk- tackling student loan debt. We are talking about this uh, fascinating piece in the Wall Street Journal about uh, widows dumping their advisor uh, upon the death of mm-hmm. the person. Oh, by the way, Jameson just joined us in on in YouTube Live or uh, Facebook Live. Jameson got vaccinated, everybody. Congratulations, oh. Jameson. High five? I don't know. I just saw that on Facebook, so I thought I'd mention it. Jackson says the technical difficulty is the new co-host of the show. <laughs> That's true. It's uh, the four of us, uh, Dame, me, Danza, and technical yeah. difficulty. That's yeah. who runs the show around here. Dame, you just want to start the show? You want to do the thing? Yeah, let's get on with it. Okay. Hold on a second. All right. Three, two, one. This week on the Pete the Planner Show, we answer your money questions. Here's how the show works. You email us, askpete at petetheplanner.com. That's askpete at petetheplanner.com, and several things could happen. One, I could simply ignore your email, and that happens. Number two, I could write about it in a newspaper column, or I could talk about it here on this show. So, Damian Dunn joins me as always. Hello, Dame. Hey, Pete. Dame, we're talking student loans today. We're talking about when advisors get dumped by their clients uh, upon the death of a spouse. I can say it better later, or we can talk about how much you should disclose about your financial life to your adult children. It's a potpourri. Dame, you tell me, what do you want to start with? Uh, Let's go off with a crowd pleaser, Uh, dumping your financial advisor. All right. 
So it, it may occur to you in your life that you may have more than uh, one relationship with a financial advisor. It's much like dating, any other sort of relationship. You sort of cycle through uh, people and use them. Um, and, and so a financial advisor uh, typically is a long-term relationship, but there is a Wall Street Journal piece uh, recently that talked about a major turnover point for the relationship with an advisor can be at the death of a spouse. In other words, how frequently a widow dumps the advisor upon the death of their uh, husband, I guess, in, in this regard. Dame, what, what's the article get at? And, and let's talk about the significance of that. Yeah. So what I've seen happen, and Pete, you probably have to over the course of your career, is that financial advisors, uh, even if they're working with a couple, end up being one person's financial advisor. They communicate primarily with one person in that relationship. Maybe it's because uh, they're the person that's more interested. Maybe they're the person that um, gives them the best feedback and they communicate or they understand more. And so that communication flows more freely between uh, the advisor and one person in that relationship. That doesn't mean they do that intentionally, but they're there to try and make a difference and frankly, maybe return the, retain the earnings or the, the, the assets as well. So they want to do whatever they can. However, uh, when that partner, that spouse passes away, uh, everything goes up in the air. A uh, couple stats before I get to the one that you're getting to. 80% of men die married. Oh, wait, wait, hold on. 80% 80 of men die, die married. 80% of women die single. Okay. Wow. Okay. We may have to we may have to live in this moment for a little bit. Eighty percent of men die married. Yes. Eighty percent of women die single, which is to say that the stat is that way because potentially the the male partner is now dead, thus making the woman single, Correct. and and then that's the issue. That's Correct. fascinating. Longer life expectancy for women, so that's it's not terribly shocking at all once you once you think about it. Seventy uh, percent of all married. Uh, baby boomer wives will experience widowhood. Okay. 70% of baby boomer wives? Yes. Okay. Will experience widowhood. So when this event happens, when uh, statistically speaking, the husband passes away, the wife still is there, and there's a financial advisor relationship, 70% of the time, widows will fire that advisor and move on somewhere else. Well, this is crazy. Yeah. I mean, not bad crazy. It's just, just really fascinating because those are some pretty major differences, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you've, you've had this relationship, uh, regardless of whatever side of the table you're sitting on. And because a major change has occurred, that relationship may not be what you, uh, what, what you want it to be or what it once was. And it becomes a easy transition point or almost a reasonable transition point uh, at that point of the relationship. Do you place, let's call it blame, because what else? Uh, do you place the blame on that shocking statistic on the advisor and how they handle the relationship? Or do you think it's a very understandable, unavoidable reality for a financial advisor? I think in a lot of cases, it's an unavoidable reality, especially with the demographic that we're talking about right now. Traditionally, in this demographic, I, I think um, typically the, the man of the relationship uh, kind of 
is in charge of the finances and and knows more about this, you know, whatever stereotype you want to throw into it. Once they're um, passed away, it becomes a uh, a search for somebody who's going to be able to relate to the the, the widow at that point, and maybe for whatever reason. Uh, they just don't think the current advisor is going to do that. Maybe they don't want to see that advisor anymore because it uh, is too emotional for them at that point as well. I mean, there, there could be a, a litany of reasons that that relationship is no longer tenable for them, but they move on. 70% of the time, the statistics show that the, the uh, widow will move on. Now, Zonda on Facebook Live asked, do they usually switch to a female advisor? I think that's a very astute question. And you got to think the percentage, I don't know if it's in the article, Dame, but you got to think the percentage of female advisors advising the widow or widower increases significantly in comparison to the gender of the advisor prior to death. Yeah, I, I would guess that uh, I didn't see that in the article, but I would say that it wouldn't be unreasonable for us to assume that female advisors uh, pick up a number of widows. However, statistically speaking, because there are so few women advisors out there, the chances are the, the widow may end up with uh, another male advisor. You know, uh, at the risk of being called a social justice warrior, uh, I, which I don't really particularly care, but I often am on, on iTunes reviews or social media when I bring up this, female advisors are amazing. <laughs> like, I don't I, there, there's still this stigma that your financial advisor has to be a man and that the best financial advisors are men. And there is absolutely no data that validates that assertion other than if you measure the performance of an advisor based on how many assets they have under management, uh, because that is a marketing in a sales metric, not the quality of advice and guidance metric. Dame, I remember when I was a younger man, a teen, if you will, uh, my mom expressing to me or me overhearing how dismayed she was in speaking to her and my father's financial advisor. She always said that it felt like the person was specifically talking past her or, or you know, or over her head, which, you know, it's a, it's a different issue because one of the challenges as a financial advisor is that the two people in a relationship have different financial acumen, right? They have different knowledge bases. And so that can be a challenge. And it's like, you only got so much time to explain a very difficult concept. And if to explain a very difficult concept, you have to explain it one way and you can't then explain it in an alternate way to the person that has less of an understanding that can bring a lot of hard feelings. So, uh, I get that. I, and when I was a financial advisor, you do your best to talk to both people, like you said, but it's, it's, it's tough. So this is a shocking statistic from the Wall Street Journal, but very, very uh, feasible in my estimation. Did you ever have the experience uh, where one person would leave the room and leave you with uh, the other person and you'd be able to just talk to them directly for a couple of minutes and say, listen, if you have any questions or if I can explain anything to you um, that, that you maybe didn't catch the first time around, let me know. Uh, send me a, give me a call, send me an email, let's do it right now. But uh, I always thought those those moments were um, very helpful to to try and make sure that that second person understood that I cared just as much about them and, and how the how comfortable they felt about the situation as as the other person. Nick on Facebook Live makes a really interesting point. He says it's not likely to change as long as most advisors get paid at the beginning of the relationship 
not highly compensated for maintenance. Well, obviously there are different compensation models. Uh, Dame, he, he's right. If it is a, you know, a loaded mutual fund sort of situation or the purchase of life insurance is paying the fees for the advisor, then yeah, there, there's not a lot of uh, incentive to, to serve people consistently. However, under the AUM model, the assets under management model, there is more of an incentive to continue that relationship. So Dame, let's do this. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk student loans and why there is a new crisis and the old crisis isn't even over yet. That's all next on the Pete the Planner Show. I'm Pete the Planner. Good audience participation, everybody. The yeah. show's only good when you're good, and you all were fantastic, Sam says. I take the lead with our advisor, but they both make a great deal of effort to make my wife feel an ease and a part of each meeting, which is really appreciative by us both. Jameson says, Pete did a great job with us as a couple related to both of us. Well, well, I just put that comment up because it pats my back. <laughs> Dame, can you see my torso today or is the camouflage fooling your eye? I just look like a floating head, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Resetting the audio here, which is uh, guaranteed to be a disaster. Um, no, it works. Dame, you're back. I'm here. I just got to get through these health checks and then we'll be good to go. All right, so Dame, we are about to hit the next crisis of student loans. We're going to do that right now. Ready to go? Yes, sir. Three, two, one. Back on the Pete the Planner show. Dame, I don't know if you noticed a lot of executive orders coming from the White House this week. A tremendous amount. I don't want to get sidetracked on the number of executive orders that came out this week and four years ago this week. But man, that's not the trend these days, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, something I wish we could move away from, frankly. I really do. You know, because then it just turns into like one group does what they think they want to do and they do it. And then the next one comes in and just undoes it with what they want to do. And, and, and that is their right, right? I mean, that is the thing. And I'm not complaining that, that Biden signed 10,000 executive orders this week. Whether I agree with them or not is a separate issue, right? Because I happen to agree with a lot of them. But I also don't feel so great about legislating via signature, you know? Yeah, I would like to see all these things get a chance to uh, pass or fail in Congress before they get a signature from the president. So one of the things that was signed this week is the extension of the student loan. Uh, what are we even calling it? Uh, student loan, the lack of the obligation to make a student loan payment until September. Let's just say that you've got a 0% interest rate on federally subsidized student loans until September. And that went into effect actually in late March of 2020. It was originally slated to go through September 30th of 2020, got extended via executive order by President Trump through the end of the year, which then was extended another month with the stimulus bill in the end of December. And then President Biden just signed one through September. Dame, this is a big problem in my estimation. And I wanted to explain why. First off, we both know 0% interest means 0% interest. The, the balances are not growing on these federally backed student loans. So you are not damaged if you're not paying on your student loans right now because you choose to use the money for something else. That is not the issue. I'm not concerned about climbing balances. I am concerned about how new habits form and how hard it is to reverse those habits, especially in a time of crisis. So Dame, here's what's happening. You know, there are three groups of people in our country. There are people who are really struggling, people who are not really struggling, but still aren't stable and people who aren't struggling, who are stable. 
And so obviously the people who are really struggling should not be making student loan payments right now because their income is cut so much. They just can't do it. There's no argument about that, right? Uh, none from my side. The third group of people uh, are people who shouldn't be doing anything differently because they have stability and they're not damaged. So they actually should still be making their student loan payments. Like, yes. This is one of the groups of people I actually worry about because when you're told you don't have to make a payment, that feels like a win. However, if you have stability and you actually don't have a very good reason to not make a payment, you should still make a payment. So I would argue a lot of these people, what we're calling group three, it's about 10% of Americans, I would think a majority of them are just keep on keeping on and, and they're making their payments uh, go the right way. It's the second group of people I worry about the most, Dave. This is 55 to 60% of Americans. And these are people who uh, have to decide how much ease they want in their life right now with all of this stress. And by not making a payment, they risk having additional discretionary income right now, which might form habits, which will make it hard for them to start back up their payments in September. Absolutely. Uh, can I ask you a question? Please. Where did September come from? Why was September picked? That's an interesting question, right? Because it seems rather arbitrary, right? Totally. Um, I would guess it's three quarters is, is in just like, you know what, yeah. we're going to three fiscal quarters and, and then, you know, October, November, December, that fourth quarter, we think, because if, if you think about how they measure the economy in a recession or in growth periods, it's based on that quarterly number. I think the bet the Biden administration is making here is that we will be out of the recession come the end of the second quarter, which I, I, I could, I would, I'm not saying I agree or disagree, but I, I, I buy that hypothesis. Like I, if that's what they're thinking, then it sort of makes sense whether I agree with it or not. Can I give you my, uh, my guess as to what's going on? Oh yeah. I didn't know you had one. I thought you were I, just curious. No. Uh, I think that the Biden administration feels that they may be able to get some loan forgiveness pushed through by September. If that's the case, that puts an interesting wrinkle into everything that you just said. If you are in one of those two groups where you should be making your payment, I would suggest that you save that payment until September. Save it. Put it in a savings account. Don't touch it. It is only for student loans. Okay. If forgiveness comes through and you've got less than $10,000 outstanding, you've got a few months worth of student loan payments sitting there waiting to be used for some other purpose. Hopefully a good one. I, if, it, yeah. if it doesn't come through then you've got all that money sitting there and you can just put it right on the student loan payments and roll forward. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm good with that, right? I, I think it's one of those, in a perfect world, I want people to do that. I don't know how many people will do that. I think the bigger issue is everything I've read, the student loan forgiveness number is likely to be around $10,000 yeah. uh, per person. And I think there could be some testing involved there. But Dame, for all those people that have the 60, 80, $100,000 of student loans, the $10,000 in student loan forgiveness, while theoretically is nice, I, I don't think it's going to have much of an impact on that person's financial life. Uh, not immediately, obviously. Uh, I think it only makes sense. What I just said only makes sense if you've got less than $10,000 of student loans. Yeah. If you've got more, then don't even give yourself the opportunity to screw this up. Just keep making the payments. However, I just talked to somebody yesterday, I think it was, that has less than $10,000 of student loans. And I explained this to them and they thought that sounded like a reasonable idea. Um, so I, 
we'll see how it works out. But uh, I would not be surprised to have a major push at student loan forgiveness by the time September rolls around. Now, confidentiality is a big part of what we do at Your Money Line and Hey Money. So, Dame, I ask you this question, and if I feel like I'm violating that, please uh, tell me. Do you happen to know what, what? Can you happen to remember what that person's monthly payment was that you talked to yesterday? Um, I don't off the top of my head. What I do know is that they were able to aggressively prepay or pre uh, pay down, I should say, other debts in their life. And so, if they got a couple other things paid off, they were going to start uh, attacking their student loan debts. So that was part of the conversation as well. Um. But no, I have no uh, cash flow was not an issue for okay. this person. Yeah, and and I want to be cognizant of my uh, privilege <laughs> that I come from uh, to express these next comments. I know for some people having a hundred, two hundred, two hundred ninety dollar student loan payment is a big deal to that to that population because it's all relative. It's relative to your income and your other expenses. However. I think the bigger issue are for people who have five, six, seven, eight hundred, twelve hundred dollar month student loan payments, even if their income is higher, that don't have to make payments right now. Right. I know it's all relative to income. Uh, I just really wish I could see the see the statistics of who benefits from this student loan moratorium. Like I, I would love to know that because. I think it's serving a population that can likely afford their payments. But in the fact that they aren't going to do that, are they going to use that money to stoke the economy? Is, it, is that part of this, Dame? Is part of this that the Biden administration is betting that, that this upper middle class group of people won't make payments now and instead will go out and spend money to, to get us out of recession. Is that part of this? It could be. I think when this was first uh, done last year, I think it was done uh, with the guise of survival for, for most people to, to give people a chance to make it from month to month. At this point, uh, I think that it, it probably has a foot in both ponds, whether it's uh, survival or spur the economy onto bigger and better things. That's fascinating. It's fascinating. Uh, so anyway, if you do not have to make a student loan payment, between now and September, and you want guidance, just go to callheymoney.com. Uh, you can sign up to talk to someone like Dame or someone from Dame's team, and uh, maybe they can help you decide what to do because I think you need a strategy. Just not making the payment, not a strategy, y'all. That's not a strategy. That's inaction. We don't like inaction. Dame, coming up after the break, our action is this. We're going to talk about how much you should tell your adult children about your financial life. I'm Pete the Planner. Whoa, hit the post. Look at me. You didn't even see it coming because I'm in camo. Indeed. Lots of good comments coming in. I'll leave. I made it into the, the room there. Dame, I do like your idea, by the way. Um, and uh, suggests that October 1st starts the federal fiscal year. That is her thought. Uh, it would make some sense. Uh, let me restart the audio. Here goes nothing. Oh, yes. oh. All right, we're back, I think. Did you see that what just happened, Dame? I did. That's I had to unmute uh stream here. Right, so, um, oh we passed. All right. All right. 
So Dane, we're going to talk about my Indianapolis Business Journal article this week. Let me pull that up. Uh, it come, It is released at 2 p.m. today, so no one actually has any context of what I'm talking about, so I have to read it. You're breaking a story? Breaking a column? Yeah, I'm probably violating some sort of thing I signed. All right, three, two, one. Back on the Pete, the planner show, Dame, I received this email this past week from a reader of the Indianapolis Business Journal, a place with that I have a financial column. Dear Pete, just read your column on talking about personal financial details with your friends. Dame, you and I talked about that uh, last week. Might you weigh in with regard to adult children? Our three are all up and out, and they know generally we've done well. <laughs> I always love when people say, how have you done? We've, we've done well. I, I always actually really enjoy that. Um, all right, continuing on. Very sorry. Uh, I lost my place. What are your thoughts regarding sharing substantial details, balance sheet, strategies, advisors, estate plan, charitable intent, etc.? cetera? Uh, would seem they'll need to know all of this at some point, right? I requested their involvement in our donor advised fund last year, but was underwhelmed with their level of responsiveness or enthusiasm. And so the person's initials were KH. Okay. Two issues uh, that I talked about in the column, and, and Dame, I'm pretty confident you already know what they are. The first being, uh, how much should you share? And then the dismay that can come when what you do share is not met with the excitement that you deliver it. Two completely separate issues. The first is, uh, well, is more of a financial and relationship issue. Dame, it is my feeling that you can share who your advisors are. You can share your charitable intent. But sharing dollar signs with adult children and what they can expect to gain at your passing is a very counterproductive exercise. I do not see the point of sharing dollar signs because I think it can provide someone a get out of jail free card that they wear around on their sleeve all the time, knowing that they could potentially be bailed out of any financial conundrum. And I think it allows them to operate uh, and moral hazard where they don't actually have to face true risks and consequences of their decisions. I'm curious if you have a similar feeling or not. First, I'm impressed that you use moral hazard. Nice job. I went to Hanover College, Southern Indiana. Vice President of the United States, former Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, also went to Hanover College. That explains everything. Yes. Uh, I am a just the facts type of person in this case. I mean, if you want to actually not only tell them who these advisors are, but introduce them uh, to, to them as well. So that if they, um, have that unfortunate period in their life where they have to talk to them because you've moved on to post-retirement, uh, it, it won't be a, a cold greeting, so to speak. So, uh, tell them who they are, tell them where stuff is, uh, your, uh, death binder PDB, uh, is a fantastic idea to make sure that everything's there. They're, they're not going to have to, um, turn over all sorts of rocks to figure out how to take care of things after you're gone, but to share dollar figures, uh, except in maybe some very specific cases. Uh, I don't, I don't see what's gained by that, to be honest. That's the key, man. That's the key. It's like, 
there's so much more bad that can come with sharing dollar signs with your adult children than there is good. Okay, so Dame, we're going to role play here. Do you want to be the, the adult child or do you want to be the wealthy parent? Uh, I'm going to be the adult child. Okay. I'll, put the, I'll put the responsibility on you. By the way, Mary Shepard just notes on Facebook Live that Dame looks like you two's the edge right now. And I have to agree, Dame, you do have the edge look to you. Okay. Son, Mr. Dunn, Damien, my son, your mother and I, we've done well. We've done well. And oh. you are, are slated to inherit roughly $496,000. And I just wanted to let you know that. Um, so there you go. Can I... I don't know, get, a, get an advance on some of no, that? No, no, that's part of your mother and I's estate. It's, it's oh. $496,000. Uh, it'll be there for you. Um, and I don't know when that time will be. I mean, I'm a pretty healthy guy. I eat a lot of fiber, daily Metamucil even. And uh, I'm fine. Uh, but $496,000 will be yours. Did um... I know you just lost your job. I understand that. But at some point in time, decades from now, I'll be dead. And you'll have $496,000. Did I tell you that uh, I, I want to go back to school? That's great. I think that's, uh, I mean, you might have to take on student loan debt, but, uh, you know, good luck, buddy. Why would I take on debt? There, there's money. See, and seen. See, this is what happened. Like, there's no point. But, Dame, if I were to say to you, hey, your mother and I put together our estate plan. We talked to our advisors. Um, we have a binder in my office that has our advisor's contact information and just know our goal for you is that at our passing, that you're not dealing with a lot of the logistics of our passing. And um, we even have some charitable requests both in our estate documents and just to let you know a summary of those in the plan. So just to let you know it's taken care of, it will not be a pain in your neck at our passing. That way you can, uh, of course, just put a shrine to us in your own home and grieve the way you should. Right. Isn't that much better? Yeah. Is there time for me to set up a charity in my name to benefit me that it could be added to your uh, last last wishes too? See, no, sorry, son, but but there's there's just no point. There's just no point. When I was an advisor, one of my biggest pet peeves, and it was a common thing, is when people knew how much their parents had planned on leaving them, and it's not the kid's fault. The parents were like, "Hey, we're loaded. We're going to leave it to you. You can do that." I just think it it. It takes a person who has a different level of resourcefulness for you and it sort of arbitrarily assigns your resources to that person. Yeah. And, and they just don't know what to do with it because they weren't there at your failures and successes on a very deep level. They may have lived in your home. They may have been upstairs listening to, you know, kids bop in their bedroom while all this was going on, but they just don't have the context that they need to deal with the dollar signs that, that you could share with them. And see, I, I just dissuade any adult with sharing dollar signs with their adult children, even if the plan is to give them all the money. I saw a quote attributed to Warren Buffett. I have no idea if it actually came from him, but it was on the internet, so it must be true. Oh, totally true. Uh, but I liked it. So I, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but I'm, I'm going to tell you what the gist of it was. Um, leave your kids enough money that they can do anything, but not enough that they can't do uh, they have to do something. Okay. So, so leave your kids enough money that they can do anything, but not enough that they can do nothing. That's what it was. Oh, that's interesting. So it, 
that's going to vary from family to family, obviously. But this is a conversation that you've had that you've brought up uh, about your view on how much that you're planning on leaving your kids if, if, uh, if that day or when that day finally comes. And it gave me some perspective uh, when I read that, or at least something to think about that, yeah, you, you want to try and take care of your kids, uh, make sure that they're going to be okay, uh, that they can, they can cope without you around or maybe take care of their kids, help them you know, get through college or whatever that may be. But you don't want to leave them so much money that they can just retire immediately. Unless, of course, you die and you're 95 and they're already 67 and then, you know, go ahead, retire. But uh, yeah, I thought that was an interesting quote. The complexity of this is obviously you and I and anyone else who's reasonable wants to provide for our survivors, especially if some of those survivors are minors. But as they transition to their 20s, my kids are not going to be financially dependent on me in my 20s. And so to set up a scenario which they instantly become benefactors of of an estate uh, your twenties is where you are out taking risks. Your twenties are when you're, when you're trying to find and, uh, you know, your, your place in this world, uh, your purpose and not to be that guy, but I feel like a big chunk of money doesn't help with that. No, it could, um, seriously influence, uh, motivation, uh, direction, drive, all sorts of stuff that would appear on a poster in a athletic locker room. Uh, but, yeah, I, there's there's all sorts of hazards that come into play when somebody's expecting a large sum of money, and then especially if they don't get it. Well, yeah. So what's interesting, and we got to hit the break here in a second. The other side of this game is when someone just assumes they'll be bailed out because their family did real well, not when they're dead, but just along in life. And then the other factor here is if you have siblings and your parents leave different amounts to different people, but that's a different dollar for a different day coming up after the break. Biggest waste of money of the week on current events right here on the Pete, the planner show. I'm Pete, the planner. Uh, someone asked C Fultz asked when I said, what does it mean? Resetting the audio. So we record this show two different ways, the audio and video. Uh, so we can do the live stream on Facebook and YouTube. But as of now, we still record a separate audio stream, which goes to our radio distribution partners and, and from a syndication standpoint and sends our show in proper time segments around to the different radio affiliates that carry our show. So if we didn't do that, then I'd have to go back through and edit the audio file. It just, it's, it's a complicated process, but when I reset the audio, I'm just resetting the ability to record that separate track Damien into his system and me into my system. Boy, that's how the sausage is made. All right, but C. Fultz also offers another comment, which I appreciate. I have a little pushback. Awesome. I think the dollar amount is insignificant, but if you have an estate plan that you release the money in a systematic manner over time, they won't be overwhelmed and entitled. Absolutely right. You know, uh, there's a euphemism within the uh, financial industry called those brat trusts. Brat trusts, which is a little rough, if I'm being honest. But uh, yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. In fact, um, I feel like I should know this. I, I feel like that's the way my estate plan is set up, that if my kids happen to be too young, or, but they're still adults, that the money sort of trickles out to them. And that's very common, very common. Yeah, yeah, it's a good approach to make sure that your kids uh, don't have uh, all the powder to make a really, really bad mistake uh, that could really impact them for long term. Oh, good. All right, so it's happened, everybody. I'm trying to reset the uh, the audio segment as I just explained that process, and it died, but it is back. Dame, are you back with me? I can hear you. Okay, boy, that's fun. 
thank you to our sponsor Zencaster for always whatever. All right, Dane, biggest waste of money of the week in current events. You get your current events all dialed up there. I do, but I'm still running health checks. Same. Uh, Levi brings up an interesting point. I think it's interesting to hear those that want a legacy of financial fortune versus those that the legacy of the relationship and experiences. Mm. And, and that's a Hallmark card. Levi did some meditations. Dame, I've been taking up uh, a meditation on a pretty intense level here. I meditate a couple times a day. It's interesting. It's interesting trying to remain calm. Can you tell? How's that working out for you? I don't know. You, it, maybe it's for you to tell me. I do feel like um, I can deal with um, both uncomfortable and intense situations in, in a better way, like in a calmer way. Uh, I don't feel the need to just react. I can, and by the way, it makes it seem like I have anger issues. I, I don't have anger issues, everybody. I, I'm just trying to, you know, trying to keep it level headed all the time. Uh, ready to go? Three, two, what was that? Oh, I thought you made a face. Three, two. One. This week's biggest waste of money of the week right here on the Pete the Planner Show is the Nissan Caravan Office Pod Concept. The COVID pandemic has many people working remotely, increasing the need for mobile offices. In response, Nissan has unveiled the Caravan Office Pod at the virtual 2021 Tokyo Auto Salon. The concept guts the cargo area of an NV350 caravan and adds a desk and an office chair, giving owners the freedom to set up shop anywhere. When you're feeling too confided inside, the workstation slides out for open air working while the rooftop doubles as an outdoor lounge with reclining chair and umbrella. Its exterior has also been upgraded with textured panels and a matte two-tone paint job. Dame, we're looking at uh, this particular concept car right now on the live stream and i have to admit it's pretty cool looking dame this is a concept car which as you know means there is no price tag on this particular thing but do you think we've gotten to the place in our covid lives where we need to turn our vehicles into offices because our homes aren't good enough for that dame your thoughts it's just kind of a smaller scale of what some people do already where they just buy a motorhome and drive around the country and you know hook up to whatever Wi-Fi they, they connect to when they, they park for the, the day or the evening and, and work from there. Um, something this small scale, it could be used for something similar to that. It's just a new way to look at work and how it fits into your life. When you see these sorts of things, do you initially think two things? Number one, you got to be single to make this work. Or two, you really got to love your life partner. Oh, yeah. For something this small, absolutely. I mean, if you had a, a bigger motor home, yeah, that wouldn't be that big of a deal. But uh, for something that's basically a glorified full-size van, yeah, you're, you're going to get to know that person really well. Mrs. Planner and I were talking about the pandemic here uh, this past week, Dame. And we, we made the point that, you know, COVID-19 is, is a huge inconvenience for a lot of people. And it's very scary we are fortunate to be in a position that, that the number of inconveniences we have pale in comparison to what are the, a lot of the inconveniences other people have. And that is a contest, but we're just saying we're in a fortunate position that way. But we made the point that, man, it would be so much easier to even deal with the inconveniences we do have if we didn't have children. The, the main inconveniences that we have around COVID involve our children in terms of schooling them, getting them to school, their exposure at different activities, like our risk factor for getting COVID 
goes down significantly without children. This is not saying that we're getting rid of our children. It's just to say two single adults who can work from two single adult, two adults who work from home uh, have such low risks compared to adults who have kids coming in and out of their house, bringing COVID in and out, you know? You remember when I talked to you out of buying a dollar place on, in Italy a couple of years ago? Yes. If you had gone through with that purchase yeah. and renovated that place, if you saw what was coming last year, would you have fled to Italy and just stayed in Italy as long as there was an internet connection and just uh, weathered the storm there? Under the hypothetical situation that you've just placed in front of me, do I have children or not? Uh, let's go with no no kids. Still have job uh, job responsibilities, but uh, no kids. That's a really good question. Um, I, I will answer this in a very serious way, actually. I will never leave where I live as a working adult because of the relationships and network that I have formed in the footprint of my area. And that is to say, if I need something done, I can get it done. When I'm a foreigner on, a, on foreign soil and I know no one and I need something, I, it would be impossible to get it done. So that, that's a very selfish, uh, privileged answer. But no, I'm never leaving this place because I can call anyone I want to get something done. <laughs> Sorry. You snap your fingers and it happens. Yeah. Uh, Dan, what's in the current events this week? Anyone looking to buy a home today is likely frustrated by sky high prices and slim pickings. But President Biden will aim to ease those issues as he gears up to implement his plans for the housing market. From home financing to home construction, Biden's plans are focused on affordability. Here are some policies that he could push for. A $15,000 first-time homebuyer tax credit. That also goes for building homes too, Pete. Uh, urging big banks to get back into FHA lending. Encouraging new construction of both single and multifamily housing. And strengthening the Community Reinvestment Act, which is intended to help low and moderate income areas. So, Dame... I have thoughts. I talked about this on Fox 59 on Wednesday this oh. past week, this very same concept. Here are my thoughts. Um, I, I appreciate getting more people to be homeowners, but I think what you and I have learned is if a person doesn't have a solid financial foundation, the act of buying the home makes their problem worse, not better. And so that is to say that in if housing prices are a major issue right now, like if you can't find a home because they're going so fast, bringing more buyers into the marketplace makes that problem worse, not better, right? Now, I do think getting the big banks back within the FHA loaning, uh, lending program is a very good idea. And however you can accomplish that would be very nice because I think that frees up dollars for low down payment uh, home purchases. But simply creating more buyer or bringing more buyers to the marketplace exacerbates the problem that we're already in. Same. Yeah, I, I don't see how this works. And by the way, first-time home buyer slash builder. Do you know what the qualification for that is, Pete? What? That you haven't uh, bought or built within the last three years. W seriously? Yep. Oh, geez. So I'm a first-time home buyer. Yep. Oh my gosh. Under this proposed policy, and the proposed policy also says that the fifteen thousand dollars tax credit is instant, so you can actually use the fifteen thousand dollars for the down payment, which. It's pretty slick and pretty cool. Um, you know, look, I, I, again, I think most people on the show know where I line up um, with my, my political thinking. 
and so I'm not going to uh, beat that over the head, but I will say this, I, th- this make this policy makes absolutely no sense to me. <laughs> like it, 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 it feels very, let's put a jukebox in the cafeteria. It's like, all it's like, now we're just like, Hey, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. I like a lot of the executive orders that have happened this week, despite the fact that I don't like executive orders, but this is, this is dumb. Jay-Z is launching a fund to invest in minority-owned cannabis startups to bolster black participation in the industry. The rapper... Yeah, cannabis. Marijuana cigarettes? Mary Jane. Okay. The rapper and entrepreneur says he's motivated by an imbalance in the marijuana business. People of color who have been disproportionately punished for involvement in the drug where it is illegal comprise only a small number of those making money from the multi-billion dollar market in legalized pot. In the 25 years since California first legalized uh, medical marijuana, cannabis has grown into a $20 billion legal business in the country and could surpass the $70 billion market for U.S. wine by 2030. I'm not a weed guy. I'm a wine guy, not a weed guy. So like these weed stories, I don't know. I can never get my head around them. Like I, I never know how legitimate a formerly illegitimate business can be, right? Yeah, I I think this is the classic of, do you want to try and get in on the ground floor of something and see where it goes? I do think uh, since, you know, marijuana laws and drug laws have disproportionately negatively impacted the black community and and communities of color, the fact that Jay-Z is trying to turn that on its head and allow people of color to invest and profit within that. I think that's kind of neat. I I think that's great. Um, But yeah, I can never get my head around marijuana stories. I don't know. It's not my whatever. Yeah. One last quick one. Please. Few public spaces in the country have been derided so thoroughly and so often as the Port Authority bus terminal uh, terminal in the heart of Manhattan. The dreary 70-year-old station with its leaky ceilings and dingy vestibules has become synonymous with the overburdened, crumbling infrastructure that's made commuting in New York a slog. But don't fret, Pete. Port Authority of New York and New Jersey has settled on a proposal transforming it into a 21st century transit hub that could take a decade to build and cost $10 billion. What? What does Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg know about this? I don't think this is out of his purview. This is just New York and New Jersey, Pete. Keep your nose out of their business. Friend of the show, former guest on the show, Pete Buttigieg, I Ooh. would have to say. Um, Dame, wow, that does that seems disconnected from reality. Especially with uh, all the reports of uh, people not coming back into the heart of Manhattan with, with their uh, jobs. Dame, that's all that we have time for this week. I'm sending everybody else good vibes. So good vibes are all this in the budget. Dame, I'm just sending you my love. This is Pete Ooh. the Planner. This is the show. I got got weird at the end there. Yeah, I'm used to it. I I really can't ever fully come to terms with the marijuana stories, and and not from a judgmental standpoint, or I think it shouldn't be out. I, I like it's like Bitcoin to me, right? It's like it's it's like cryptocurrencies where I'm like, there's so much unknown that it just feels inherently risky. I don't know. I think it's total speculation at this point. What do you have more confidence in cryptocurrencies and for 10 years from now, 10 years from now, cryptocurrencies or marijuana? Uh, I'm going to go with marijuana. You have more faith in marijuana than cryptocurrency 10 years from now. You know what? Let's put that to Facebook live audience. By the way, Jameson said, fun fact, the first time you ever heard of Pete Buttigieg was on this very show. Very nice. Oh, by the way, um, congratulations to Adam Wren 
who who writes for Importantville, a few other publications, Politico, Indianapolis Monthly. Uh, He and his wife just had a a baby boy this week. Oh, congratulations. Uh, He actually is who lined up the Pete Buttigieg interview for me. So uh, thank you, Adam, uh, and uh, congratulations. All right, so the audience, Weed, hands down, Jeremy said he thinks Weed is the the better investment in the next 10 years than cryptocurrency. Hmm. I don't know. I got to weigh in on this. Um, Yeah, I think Weed. Hashtag Weed. I mean... Did you see that uh, Hashtag. Janet Yellen had uh, a little bit of comments about cryptocurrencies at her conference yesterday? I think it was yesterday, maybe the I, day before. I, yeah, she said something really vague that sort of upset people uh, in the cryptocurrency land. Yeah. By the way, you can say anything about cryptocurrency if you're not involved in cryptocurrency and you will anger the cryptocurrency people. Sure. They get, they're very touchy. Yeah, this is cryptocurrency is going to solve all the world's problems, according to them. What, what did Yeah, what did she say specifically? Uh, I think she basically said they were going to have to, uh, not they were going to have to, uh, but it warranted monitoring on potentially throwing some regulations or roadblocks out there because of all of the illicit things that are funded with crypto. Oh boy. We got ACLU is going to get involved. Going to get interesting. Dame, any parting shots that you want to uh, have here on the show this week? No. Take care of yourself. Take care of others. Be kind. Oh my gosh. Um, Dame, I do. We we started at the beginning of the show. I, I highly recommend, and, and I, I won't send you the clip because you can find it yourself. Take, well, take the five minutes if you can, but take 30 seconds just to see the stage presence of Amanda Gorman, the poet who spoke at the inauguration. Like, I like the poem. I like the message. I think it's pretty great. Just evaluate her on stage presence. She will blow your mind. So... So does she have any background outside? I mean, I know she's a poet, but is she got uh, you know acting or you know Broadway or anything like that? Any kind of background? Yeah, you know, that's an amazing question, right? Because um, you haven't even seen the clip, but that, that's that's a really good question because you can tell there's something there. She was she like studied sociology. She went to Harvard, and then just got into poetry sort of late in life. The the most phenomenal part about this, I saw an interview with her on CNN with Anderson Cooper. She has struggled with a speech impediment for years and years and years and years and years. Hmm. And my son, Theodore, uh, struggles with his R's and she struggled with her R's up until two years ago. Right. And so she would, uh, recite a rap song from Hamilton, uh, Aaron Burr, or thing to try to work out her R's. And when you hear her speak, not only did, can you not detect a speech impediment was there two years ago, but but she comes off as one of the most dynamic enunciators, speakers that you've ever seen in your life. So then you hear that she had those speech impediment issues and it just blows your mind. So again, dude, just take 10 seconds and watch just the beginning. You, you don't have to watch the whole poem, which I like, but watch it. She's ridiculous. So anyway. All right. All right. Um, oh, you know what? Brittany just weighed in. I think this is interesting context. She did part of the Sesame Street show they did on racism. My kids recognized her. Oh. Who knew? There you go. And then, Mary, you're going to end the show with your comment. I don't remember much of the Telluride Blues Fest, thanks to edibles. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. All right, Dame. Hey, buddy. Uh, have a good rest of your day. All of you, we'll see you next week at this time. Uh, peace and love. Peace and love.